Thank you for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to the seventh installment in STS's 2021 webinar series. This series runs every month and features presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. The topic for today's session is how to start a surgeon-led lung cancer screening program. We want to make this webinar as interactive as possible and hear from you, the audience. To this end, you may utilize the chat feature and enter questions through the Q&A feature in Zoom. The moderators will try to respond to your questions if possible. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. We invite you to become a member of STS if you're not one already. You'll enjoy a variety of discounts, benefits, and opportunities to help you grow professionally. Learn more at sts.org membership. At this time, I'm pleased to welcome our moderators for this session, Dr. Betty Tong and Dr. Marco Anaitis. Moderators, I'll now turn it over to you to introduce our panelists and get things started. Good evening. Thank you for your attendance, and we welcome you to this webinar. Our first speaker this evening is Dr. Marco Anaitis, who is a thoracic surgeon from the University of California, San Diego. Good evening. Uh, so my topic is an introduction is lung cancer screening, why surgeons need to be involved. The pros and cons of starting a screening program for surgeons uh, are listed here. Uh, first, I'm going to show you two studies, the NLST and the Nelson study, which demonstrate that there's a stage shift to curable stages, which leads to improved disease-specific survival. And so in short, I think screening is the right thing to do for our patients. I think no other specialty will do it as well. And we already have nodule clinics. We're regularly triaging small lesions and having discussions with patients about the pros and cons of watchful waiting or invasive procedures to try to diagnose and treat the lesions. There are some cons, however. A fair bit of work uh, is involved in starting a screening program, and there are potential medical legal consequences if someone were to develop a lesion that uh, is not followed up or that metastasizes while watchful waiting is happening. Uh, and there are some uh, reservations about costs. And so studies cost money, personnel that you might need to help see patients and, and a database to keep track of patients cost money. And then a vital part of screening is smoking cessation, which is, is also somewhat costly. Um, and false positive studies may lead to unnecessary procedures, which can lead to costs in terms of money as well as uh, complications. So here's the NLST that was published in 2011. There were over 53,000 participants, ages 55 to 74 with at least a 30 pack year smoking history and recent smoking. They had to be medically operable with no prior malignancy in the previous five years. And importantly, the, the scans were read with a diameter-based assessment of the lesions. So there were two groups, a low-dose CT group and a chest X-ray group. And in the CT scan group, 62% of the diagnoses were made from positive screens, whereas in the chest X-ray group, this was only 30%. You can note in both cases that multiple patients were, were found not on screening, uh, which is characteristic of this population. However, when you look at these two groups, the low-dose CT group, 50% of them were diagnosed at stage one, whereas the chest X-ray group, 50% of them were stage four. And that leads to this 20% reduction in lung cancer-specific mortality. And there was an overall reduction in overall mortality as well of 6.7%, but that was mostly related to lung cancer-specific mortality. One criticism or negative of the study is that 24.2% of the CT scans were positive, and only 3.6 of these were true positives. 
Of the patients who had positive screens, 92% had, di had a diagnostic evaluation with the vast majority of these being repeat imaging, but 8.4% underwent invasive diagnostic procedures. There were 16 deaths in this group within 60 days and six of the 16 had benign nodules. And I would posit that, it, that in a surgeon led program with modern surgical techniques that many of these deaths may be avoided. After that study, the STS had a task force on screening and they published this clinical statement in Annals of Thoracic Surgery in 2013. Um, some of the things that they emphasized in the, in the publication were minimization of false positives. Up to 5.6% of cases need surgical biopsy and only about 4% of these are malignant. As I mentioned before, we're used to this sort of nodule management and may be able to improve uh, the number of patients that actually get resected. Um, a multidisciplinary team with surgeons playing an important role was a recommendation, but especially minimally invasive resection using video assisted thoracoscopic or robotic approaches for diagnosis and treatment to minimize treatment related morbidity and mortality. Here's the Nelson trial, which was just published last year, 15,792 patients, the majority of which were men in the Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, they had a slightly lower smoking history, also recent smokers, all the patients were medically fit. Importantly, in this trial, the CT scans were read with a volume-based assessment, which may give a more accurate and more, um, more accurate diagnosis of whether the lesions are cancer or not. Here are the results for the screening uh, group. As you can see in the third column from the right, there were about 2% of positive tests overall, much lower than the 24% in the NLST, and about 1% of those were true positives, and the positive predictive value is in the 45% range. Again, stage shift was impressive in the trial with over 40% of patients stage one in the CT scan group and the control group, which received no imaging, 46% of patients that were stage four. And that led to a survival improvement in the screen group, which was actually on a relative risk basis better than the NLST trial. What about overdiagnosis? The, the phenomenon that some of the lung cancer patients who have lung cancer may die of something else before the lung cancer progresses or metastasizes or leads to death. The, the uh, upper bound of overdiagnosis rates in the NLST was 18.5% and 19.7% in Nelson, but with longer follow-up due to the longer lead time of adenocarcinomas, which is nine to 12 years in some modeling, that number may continue to fall to as low as 9%. And so with all this data, the number needed to screen for, for lung cancer screening is a little over 300 patients screened to prevent one lung cancer death, and that compares favorably to monography and colonoscopy. Doctor, under the guidance of Dr. Wood, the NCCN has, has kept up with all of these studies and reviewed the literature every year and made recommendations. And these are the way that we manage all lung nodules. And so we're used to this sort of size-based management and growth-based management with biopsy or surgical excision being made in high-risk patients after discussion with the patient in the clinic. And so we, here's our screening algorithm at UCSD. We have smoking cessation and a low-dose CT on the same day, negative screens. We inform the MD and get another screen in a year. Positive screens, we decide what to do based on the NCCN guidelines. And, and here's some data from our institution, 139 patients over the first 18 months of the program. We looked at the cost of this and Dr. Gilbert's gonna do much more thorough and in-depth analysis of cost in his talk. The demographics were as you would expect. Uh, we, we found 10 lung rads, four lesions in our first 
159 patients and did six operations on those patients. All of them were node negative. We had two lobectomies, segmentectomies, and then one mediastinoscopy for sarcoid. And so when we did the, the net revenue of the uh, program, we were in the, in the black, here it's green, um, mostly because of the procedures, but also because of the outpatient E&M. We did not include the cost of the scans in this analysis, which would improve the, the numbers as well. And so in conclusion, lung cancer screening saves lives. I think that surgeon involvement is critical to triage nodules and minimize the invasiveness of diagnostic tests. I do think the cost effectiveness remains an open question. Um, I think we will take questions at the end. And so let's proceed to the next talk. Thank you, Dr. Onitis. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Mimi Seppa, who is a thoracic surgeon at the University of Indiana in uh, Indianapolis. Mimi. First, I want to um, thank our moderators, Dr. Tong and Dr. Onitis, for inviting me to participate in this panel. I am. Um, I come from the perspective of having started the lung screening program at IU Health when I first started the practice. And uh, I since have also expanded to some other sites within the Indian metro area. And uh, I also participated in um, starting the lung screening program at our VA as part of the VA PALS um, program. And so I sort of divided this talk into segments. And so the first part would be, you know, things you need to think about before you even start doing the lung screening program. Then we get into the crux of who should be on your team. And then I end with, um, I guess, all the background stuff that you don't, you don't even think about, but certainly become a major headache. Um, so this is just a overview of the CMS requirements for reimbursement for lung screening. And as you can see, there are facility requirements, there are radiology requirements, et cetera. And you know, you, in order to dot your I's and cross your T's, I think it's actually pretty important to have a dedicated team to lung screening and not just people who kind of you know, on and off do it. And with that, I think it's paramount that you um, get top level support from your hospital leadership. And let's be honest, whenever we talk about getting support from the hospital leadership, we're really talking about salary support, right? And so it's important to get salary support for your advanced practice providers who do lung screening. Uh, I think it's extremely important to have an administrative assistant who has some time dedicated to lung screening. It's very easy to say, oh, the advanced practice provider can you know, do all the database managing and they can send all the recall letters. But as soon as your program grows and you start getting a lot of patients, it actually becomes quite an arduous task. And really, you want your advanced practice provider to be seeing patients, not, not sending out letters and updating the database. Um, Dr. Onitis talked about tobacco cessation and how it's important having um, it as part of your lung screening program, you can have separate specialists, or quite frankly, your advanced practice providers can get the training to become, to double up as being the tobacco cessation specialist. And then of course, support for the medical director. You know, the medical director oversees everything, kind of makes sure there's quality control, um, and that uh, we're, you know, data, the data is accurate and that we're managing the patients appropriately. And so it's also important to get support for the infrastructure, obviously the CT scans, department radiology support, et cetera, but also more for um, this patient tracking software. It, um, you don't wanna be tracking these patients on an Excel spreadsheet. It's, it's not safe, it's confusing, you're not, it's not accurate. And quite frankly, uh, you're, gonna, you're gonna miss out, you're gonna lose patients, especially once patients um, you get too many patients. And so, you know, investing in a patient tracking software is important. And of course, you want some uh, funding for marketing. 
I won't belabor the point with radiology, but you know, it goes without saying you need to have a CT scan with accessibility and availability. And by that, I mean like true accessibility and availability, not like you know, a Sunday at 12 midnight, right? Because no one's gonna come to get their lung screening scan on a, on a weekend in the middle of the night. Um, you know, they need, the uh, radiology division needs to adhere to the American College of Radiology Imaging Requirements and the radiologist specific requirements. And with all that, I, I think it's actually pretty important to have a lead person in the Department of Radiology as your go-to to kind of assure quality from all of that stamp, from that standpoint. But um, even more importantly, to assure adherence to standardized reporting. There have been a handful of times where we have had scans that were read on the weekends by a non-chest radiologist who was sort of moonlighting for the night, and they might have gotten the scan read a little bit off. So we'd call up our radiology lead and say, you know, I don't agree with this lung rats reading. I think it's a two and not a three, you know, and that's when you have that, that radiologist lead weigh in and, uh, you know, essentially agend the, the reading and, and, and so that patients are managed appropriately. So getting into the crux of the team, I've already mentioned, you know, the advanced practice provider or providers, depending on how large your team is, uh, the tobacco cessation specialist who can very well be the advanced practice provider who is doing the lung screening, administrative support and the medical director. Now, CMS has recommended that this all be done in a multidisciplinary fashion. So that, you know, medical, having, you know, a good representative for medical oncology and radiation oncology so that the patients can be managed appropriately thereafter. We've already talked about the importance of radiology. Dr. Oneida spoke very uh, highly of the, you know, the influence of surgery in lung screening. I can't agree with him more, but at the same time, I think that it's also important that pulmonary has a presence. You know, not all patients should get a wedged lobectomy. Some might need other procedures. On the other hand, if you don't have that checks and balance systems, you have too strong of a pulmonary uh, presence, all sorts of patients may be getting percutaneous biopsies and EBISs and navigational bronchoscopies or unnecessary diagnostics tests when they really could have gone straight to a, a wedge and, um, and, and lobectomy. So this is just an example of how a system can look like. So uh, downtown at IU, uh, at the Academic Health Center, it's thoracic lead. We have a 0.1 FT thoracic PA who runs the um, lung screening program. We have she does virtual visits. We have block time with radiology on the scanner. Just 10 miles to the west at IU West, the program is actually led by pulmonary. They have a nurse practitioner who dedicates 0.2 of her time to lung screening. She only sees in-person visits or in-person patients, and she does have CT block time. And at IU North, we just started that lung screening program. It's fairly young. It's thoracic-led. We have our thoracic PA who dedicates 0.1 roughly of her time doing this. She does virtual visits. And, you know, quite frankly, because it's a young program, the radiology department gave us a a lot of you know um, resistance in giving us block time, so we don't have block time, which, if you can imagine, can potentially become a logistical nightmare, right? So she sees the, she does the virtual visits, they get scheduled for their scan. She has to keep track of when the scan's done so she can catch up um, and and, re, and you know call them back with the results. So right now it's manageable, but that can be quite um, quite hard later on. Over at the VA, as I mentioned, we're part of the VA PALS um, program. It's pulmonary led. We started off with one FTE dedicated purely 
to lung screening, but once the program grew really large, that only took about a year, we um, justified the uh, salary of a second nurse practitioner who is dedicated to lung screening only. We also have 0.25 FTE of a administrative assistant to help the database management is done by the nurse practitioners, the MSA uh, does all the recall and the scheduling, et cetera. So this is just examples of how different hospital systems can set it up in a different way, depending on what, um, what support you're, they're willing to give and what resources you have. And so I, about the administrative stuff, so the background stuff that, um, that really, you, you really don't think about until you have to start programming and then you realize all the headaches that are involved. But it's important to have a person on your team who is involved in scheduling. Um, this would be the person, you know, and the reason why it's important because this is just an example of what it's like uh, for our system. You know, the, we have a one number you call the number, our schedulers pre-screen the patients for eligibility, then they say, do you want to have your scan done at downtown, west or north? Do you want it virtually or do you want it in person? And as you can imagine, all that's quite, um, quite, quite can, can be quite confusing. Not all systems have to be quite that busy or that, um, that complicated. On the other hand, you know, it's important to be deliberate about the planning of the process of scheduling so that the patient themselves have a very easy, smooth process. It's important to have a team member who is um, in inf information technology that's to make sure the orders are accurately written and et cetera, et cetera. And then it's important to have a member on your team who um, looks at the financial side of things. And that's for the billing from radiology standpoint for the shared decision-making visit. And I can't emphasize more that not all insurance providers are, are equal. And by that, I mean, even though the USPS task force has recommended, you know, has given lung screen a grade B recommendation, meaning that it should be covered by insurance, not all policies actually cover preventative care. So we've had a handful of patients who have gotten the scan and on the tail end uh, had to pay it out of pocket on account of the fact that their personal policy did not um, cover uh, preventative care. And so now it's part of our, our scheduling process. We ask patients to look at their policies and make sure that, that preventive care is um, is covered. And so, you know, my, the last part uh, that I can think of in terms of being uh, part of the, the team of building a lung screening program is the community, right? You have to have a community that buys into it. As we know, there are referring physicians who are resistant, who may be resistant to lung screening. Um, you know, uh, there are patients uh, who may be resistant to lung screening. We've done uh, focus group studies on patients and, and their beliefs on lung screening. We know that overall, there's a lack of awareness of the guidelines, there's a mistrust of the healthcare system. There are patients who are concerned because of the stigma of smoking and of course there are access and cost issues and so it's really important in order to have a successful screening program to to educate the community so that they are part of a team to help refer patients so that you can have a uh, a successful program and i'm sure that dr erkman will go into more details about uh, the obstacles of screening uh, in the next talk and with that i um will stop sharing my screen and make way for the next speaker. Thank you, Dr. Seppa. Uh, our next speaker tonight is Dr. Loretta Arunse, who is a thoracic surgeon at the City of Hope Cancer Center in Duarte, California. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. I hope you guys can hear me um, well. Um, so um, we will be discussing uh, the impact of lung cancer screening by way of outreach and engagement within the community. 
So um, our work that we'll be discussing was informed by our uh, systematic review that we performed looking at racial and socioeconomic disparities in lung cancer screening. And, and what we noted was that um, underserved and marginalized communities experienced significant disparities along the whole lung cancer screening pipeline. Um, as we know, they, you know, marginalized groups have higher risk for lung cancer and worse outcomes from the disease. But unfortunately, these same groups have uh, eligibility criteria that might exclude these uh, communities from taking part. And um, even when patients are eligible in these communities, many times they're less likely to be uh, the screen um, anyway. And so um, when we sort of consider some of the issues around um, lung cancer screening disparities and particularly low utilization, we understand that many times it's due to a lack of knowledge of both patients and providers. Um, many patients or eligible smokers have no idea about lung cancer screening. And certainly as we discussed earlier, our primary care uh, physicians many times lack awareness around the guidelines. Um, and you know these barriers and this lack of knowledge might even be greater in underserved communities. And what we've noticed in other, um, you know, whether it be in colorectal cancer screening and um, uh, breast cancer screening, is that there have been a lot of efforts and um, by way of multi-component interventions to try to reduce disparities uh, in screening. And and this is primarily done um, through increasing community demand for screening potentially through group education or increasing community access to screening by addressing transportation issues and other social determinants and increasing provider delivery um, by really supporting the providers. We also uh, found through um, another review that, you know, our low income and, and patients who have lower resources by way of education, again, have higher risk for lung cancer, but they too very much uh, uh, have tremendous barriers to obtaining these screens. So again, despite the fact that these marginalized groups have increased risk, they are less likely to obtain the, um, the, the screens. And, and what we found that it was helpful was community education, patient navigation, um, because many times they're able to bridge the gaps. And so working within a community context in a multifaceted approach is the way to really get uh, this um, very important um, screening modality to patients. And so we, um, with this um, knowledge, wanted to work with with some of our underserved groups. And so we, we sought out and connected with two um, phenomenal federally qualified health centers in our catchment. And so by way of review, FQHCs um, are community-based organizations that provide primary care um, and preventative care to underserved groups. They are literally paid um, to uh, be a healthcare safety net to uh, individuals regardless of insurance or a documentation uh, documentation status. And, and so we partnered with two, one on the Lithia Harrell Christian Health Center and the Park Tree Community Health Center. And you see that they see uh, thousands of patients a year, 90% or above of their patients are racial ethnic minorities. And we partnered with these um, two organizations and, and, and really talked about how we could create a lung cancer screening program. And we felt that it was, it was very important to have sort of a four-pronged approach. And the first um, uh, prong was uh, focus on education. It was important, we felt, to educate, as Dr. Seppa mentioned, both uh, our patients and our providers. And so we created language concordant and culturally competent uh, educational materials and really sought 
to, to educate both groups around lung cancer screening. Um, and then um, within our study, we, we felt that it was important, obviously, to get these patients to screen, but also to navigate them through it and to th think about um, their social determinants. Again, in these marginalized groups, um, there are many barriers, including social determinants, that can impact their ability to, to get the screens that they need. So we um, wanted to make sure that transportation was not an issue. So if a patient needed transportation, we were there to help. Um, if they were out of pocket, follow-up costs like Dr. Seppa mentioned, or if like their, their insurance um, did not comprehensively pay for all of their uh, scan needs, we would bridge that gap. And, and we had uninsured patients who we were able to help facilitate uh, their scans as well. And you know, there was a, another problem around um, research. We specifically wanted to understand the beliefs and barriers that providers and patients had. And so before our educational session, um, we provided our providers specifically with um, surveys um, before and after the education session, because we wanted to understand um, how the education session might impact their, their understanding and knowledge. And then lastly, it was very important that we um, assure that there was follow-up, right? Again, this is, these are busy clinics, providers are overwhelmed. And so we, we wanted to make sure that this was not just gonna be, hey, we get the patient to their scan and then we sort of leave them to their own. Uh, own. And so we, it was important for us to make sure the patients got through, whether they needed a follow-up appointment, they, they got it, they needed to see a specialist, they needed the biopsy, that those things happen um, in the right place. And we also were working hard to get champions at each of the sites as well as a system for tracking enormous findings and an alert system as well. And so this is a busy slide, but the point of it here was we we first, before our educational session, which was an hour, um, we, we gave our providers a, a belief a survey and we literally asked them why they would or wouldn't um, um, uh, you know, offer or refer for low-dose CTs. And honestly, it was very, um, so most of these um, providers are, are primary care physicians and there were a lot of distinct thoughts and misbelief about uh, about lung cancer screening. And so we were able to really hone in and, and target what, the, what their uh, beliefs were during our one hour long educational session. And we, pro we provided education for providers, staff and medical assistants because we, we realized that all of the team was necessary, especially at our FQHCs where everyone's already busy and overwhelmed. And we talked about, uh, uh, we gave an overview of lung cancer. We talked about lung cancer screening eligibility criteria, the risks and benefits of lung cancer screening and biopsies, which was a big deal. Uh, there were a lot of misconceptions around that. Um, and, and we really talked about shared decision-making and billing. And, and I think that's important. Uh, our providers need to, to be able to bill. And so we wanted to help them navigate that. And of course, tobacco cessation teaching. And during the educational session, we gave them um, a packet where they could have referral um, information. Basically, all the things that we talked about, they can have at the ready, as you see on the right. Um, and so, you know, our study began in September 2019, and to date we had 124 patients enrolled, and, and, and you know, we were able to enroll that many despite COVID, which um, really um, delayed things considerably, I'm sure, at most of the uh, programs um, throughout the nation. And, and you can see that in our um, study that most of our patients were non-white um, and that you see here on the bottom, 89% um, of the pay, uh, individuals had an annual income of less than $30,000 living in California. So, um, uh, 
very difficult, very vulnerable group. And um, the educational level, 43.8% have less than high school education. And so of our patients, um, 17, we had 17 of the patients, we had to cover their costs because of under, under insurance. And 11 of the patients, we needed to help them um, get transportation to their, their low-dose CT scans through Uber Health. And you can see on, on the bottom left that prior to our program, only about nine low-dose CTs for lung cancer screening were ordered the year prior to our program. And then after that, at, the, at one of our FQHCs, it, it's gone up to 137. And then on the right, you see that at one FQHC, there were no um, um, low-dose CTs that were um, ordered prior to our start and then 107 after. Um, and you know, today we've had one patient with lung cancer who will be going on underground resection soon. And then seven patients who had lung uh, RAS3 and are um, scheduled for follow-up. So specifically around research, uh, again, we the, the point of our surveys for our providers was to measure changes in the knowledge and comfort uh, around um, lung cancer screening. And we found that there was a uh, statistically significant improvement in um, their ability to identify appropriate patients for lung cancer screening and in their comfort counseling. And that to us was very important. And I think it's the reason why, you know, we recruited 124 patients within our, our program, but there have been over 250 low-dose CT scans that have been ordered, showing that our providers are really getting it. They're understanding the importance. And now, you know, all of the myths that they've had um, have been um, dispelled. And then our education survey to our patients was really focused on their social determinants and the barriers that they, they had around lung cancer screening and evaluation of the lung cancer screening program. So, you know, we, I know there's going to be discussion about obstacles. And so I would just focus in on the last part, which is the HEDIS criteria. So for those of you who might engage in community clinics and particularly FQHCs, you probably know about the healthcare effectiveness data and information set criteria. And in essence, it, it is a it's measures for monitoring quality improvement performance gaps. So it's a, the metrics that our docs and our providers at FQHCs go by. So they've got to order mammography for appropriate women. They got to order colonoscopies as well as diabetes testing and all of this. But lung cancer screening is not a, a HEDIS criterion. So it lowers the incentive to comply with the guidelines in these um, with these providers who are already so busy. So that is certainly, um, I think, work that we could do to, 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 to try to move that forward by helping uh, policymakers understand that this that lung cancer screening certainly um, uh, should be a criteria. So in, in summary, the highest risk individuals are often unable to reach academic centers and therefore outreach to these vulnerable communities is key because the disparities around lung cancer and lung cancer screening are, are significant. Um, education, navigation, and provider support are critical to community engagement efforts and uh, our advocating for lung cancer screening at the community level can be beneficial in increasing uh, patient and provider comfort and trust in early detection efforts. So this is our study team. I am done. Thank you so much. And we can go to the next. Thank you, Dr. Arunse. Our next speaker is Dr. Sherry Erkman from Temple University in Philadelphia. Thank you very much for uh, the invitation to speak, um, the STS, Dr. Tong and Dr. Anitis. Uh, so uh, I thought it was interesting to give a little bit of background about uh, my practice. And I originally started a lung cancer screening program hand in hand with a radiologist at Dartmouth and then um, moved to Temple 
and started the program at Temple. And they're very, very different um, environments and therefore very different programs. So some of the lung cancer screening barriers uh, that I faced in both places, I'll go over here. So as Dr. Sapa said, there are really a lot of requirements to lung cancer screening. Um, on the right here, I don't expect you to read them, but some people say that there are 10 critical um, components and uh, this lower reference has nine critical components, but really looking at what uh, we're responsible for in terms of billing, um, eligibility and confirmation of that, shared decision-making, low-dose CT, standardized reporting to patients, coordination of follow-up care and smoking cessation just as Dr. Sepa uh, lined up. But each of these requirements can turn around to turn into a barrier. So eligibility, it's difficult for patients. It depends on uh, changing guidelines, new evidence, uh, what insurance they have. And for the provider, same thing. And perhaps there are different guidelines that would suit their patients better. Um, and then eligibility from a screening infrastructure standpoint, the consistency, confirmation, billing quality, timing, all of these, um, just eligibility becomes a barrier. And here, uh, a study from the VA showed that 39.3% of people evaluated to get lung cancer screening actually had incomplete data on smoking and pack years. So a lot of work has to be done to just get correct eligibility criteria and to fulfill those. Shared decision-making to the patient, it has to be evidence-based, it has to be understandable, culturally sensitive, relevant, uh, who's doing it, how long does, uh, is it done, and how do we, again, get consistency and billing? So shared decision-making uh, in and of itself becomes a barrier. Uh, the scanner, the time location to the patient matters and to the provider, how do they get the results and communicate them and technical qualifications and standardized reporting to patients. Um, then at all levels, coordination and follow-up care. I wanted to drill down onto this a little bit more closely. Barriers to screening when we're looking at follow-up care in the National Lung Screening Trial was 95%, but it really deteriorates in real world settings where it's 85%, 55% for looking at positive screens. But then when you actually look at for anything, including incidental findings, it goes down 60, 50, and then annual screens, only 59%. Um, and then in the bottom, we look at our data from Temple, a largely uh, underserved community, 18% at one, two, and three years, went down to less than 1% of people had three annual screens. So the follow-up is, is a barrier. Um, and smoking cessation. It can be a barrier because uh, it costs, it's hard, uh, you have to follow up, and the success rates are low. So all of these really turn into barriers. And so though they are requirements, it becomes almost a brick wall. Uh, I think um, it's very important to look at your local community and to do those focus groups that a lot of our other speakers have 
noted because the patient barriers in one location are very, very different from barriers in another location. So it's really important to do your own data and um, focus groups monitoring of patients to find out what are your patient barriers. And we found out that most of our barriers were time uh, and 96% of people had not even heard about lung cancer screening. So time and education were most important. Um, so we used that focus group information and that data and we developed strategies, uh, some very straightforward uh, questions and answers, fact sheets, web-based um, information guides. And we, we shot for about the fourth grade reading level, uh, mostly because it, it's best for messaging. Just keep it very straightforward. Uh, we created a couple of patient stories and translated it to several languages. And patient stories we, we put on written form, but also on short video clips so that people feel that it's not just, you know, literature that's being thrown at them that they can identify with actual patient stories. Um, so here are some uh, resources for patient education that are available to everybody. I thought that uh, the GoTo Foundation has great resources for patients and you can um, access them. Um, hopefully with the STS, Dr. Chong and I will get some patient guides together. And uh, the American Cancer Society also has a great website. These are printable handouts that are great from the CDC and the NIH. And you can print them up in the office and, uh, and get a lot of your patients' questions answered. So um, I really like these resources to address patient uh, education issues. Um, provider barriers, we talked a little bit about. Uh, this is a really good um, resource from AHRQ to give people an outline of what a lung cancer screening visit looks like. So again, a great resource that you can direct uh, referring physicians to uh, help them get started. And um, the American College of Radiology has these great resources as well. They have a toolkit for starting a lung cancer screening program. Um, we contributed uh, some uh, EPIC templates and order sets. And they're just a bunch of resources in terms of uh, questions like misunderstanding false positives and um, understanding shared decision-making and other resources for shared decision-making. There are barriers uh, in terms of strategies to overcome them. You can always let people know that there are NCCN guidelines that are much more inclusive than our US Preventive Services Task Force guidelines. And many times you can include more people in screening with NCCN guidelines. And for a lot of providers, shared decision-making is a huge hurdle. And this is just a, a graphic to show there's a continuum of uninformed persuasion. You really just tell people you have to get screened and then you inform persuasion, you give them the data and then inform decision-making using an actual tool like a frequently asked questions and a discussion. And so Should I Screen is a great resource. Again, HRQ has a resource. And uh, another resource is called uh, Option Grades, which um, we developed at Dartmouth. And looking at these, uh, the shared decision-making tools are very time-consuming. 
um, they are largely equivalent in giving a conversation, but uh, the ones that are more effective take more time. And this study, the second study evaluating shared decision-making was very interesting in that when they looked at shared decision-making visits, physicians universally recommended lung cancer screening. So they're not um, really going through a decision-making process. It's really a recommendation. Uh, discussion of harms was virtually absent. The mean time spent in the discussion was about a minute. And there really wasn't um, evidence that there was a decision aid even used in most decisions uh, in most lung cancer screening visits. So we do have a long way to go. Um, again, our messaging, we really try to make it very straightforward. Harms of screening is probably the most important thing to discuss. Uh, when we looked at about uh, 1,000 people screened, 11.9% had a false positive and 0.8% underwent a procedure, CT-guided biopsy, surgery, because of a false positive. So these are harms that I think we as surgeons are really able to lay out for patients and, and for providers and important to, to get to what can really happen. Um, so some strategies that we've used at Temple, uh, which is predominantly African-American, we have a very low household income. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a really important uh, group of people because African-Americans have even greater benefit from screening in terms of lung cancer uh, mortality, all-cause mortality uh, decrease. So at Temple, we developed a single visit screening where people come in from um, either an order or a referral or a phone call. But once they get the visit, they do shared decision-making, they get their CT scan, we turn around the report and give them the results on the same visit. If they're positive, we discuss with them right then and there, you have a PET scan coming or we should see you in three months or six months. If it's one or two, then we give them recommendations to return in a year. Um, so far, we've done 2,300 patients. Um, we have about 84% of early stage detection. And overall cancer diagnosis, this is very busy, of about 2.8%. So, uh, so far, uh, we are making progress. And of course, a huge barrier, COVID. Um, we have tried to implement a single uh, encounter telemedicine visit, and it actually works very well. Patients come in, get their scan, go home, and we give them a call. Um, and some patients actually prefer it. So other strategies to overcome the barriers to screening. So um, as we're looking at screening, can be barriers, but brick walls aren't there to keep us out. They're there to give us a chance to show how badly we want something. So thank you uh, for your time. And I just wanted to um, also give a notice to one of my residents who's doing a survey on institutional variability in the deliver delivery of lung cancer screening. So we have a survey just because there are many, many different models and we're interested in, in learning more about our community and how we're delivering care. Thank you for your time.
Dr. Ackman, thank you very much. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Christopher Gilbert, who is an interventional pulmonologist at the Swedish Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. Hello, uh, I'm trying to get the screen up. It still says I'm viewing Dr. Erkman's screen. All right, are you all able to see this now? Okay, so I was asked to, um, uh, like I said, my name's uh, Chris Gilbert. I'm an interventional pulmonologist uh, and I was asked to speak about lung cancer screening and the financial impact. Everybody knows that uh, lung cancer screening is important um, ever since the NLST came out, uh, as well as before that, most likely. But uh, we know that it's good for patients. We know that it's good for society. Uh, but how can one really best do it? Um, it's great to do things that are great for patients. But everybody knows that we also live in a world of financial reality. Uh, and so we do have to try to figure out how we can best accomplish these uh, as well. Um, so how do lung cancer screening programs exist? There's a number of different models, some of which we've already heard about today, um, and many that you're probably familiar with as well. Uh, most of them kind of essentially break down into two different types, either a more decentralized program or a more centralized program. The decentralized program is often more so radiology and maybe primary care based. Um, patients can get uh, reports sent uh, via paper or letter, somewhat like some mammograms uh, or through my chart. Um, it, oftentimes the PCP may be the person that has a, a, a fair amount of discussions with patients in regards to what results mean, or maybe they're trying to figure them out themselves. Um, versus a centralized program, which is usually based in some type of place uh, or person. Um, and these can also still be letter-based. They can be phone calls or they can be in-person visits. Uh, probably both programs work uh, for different situations uh, better than some others. Um, uh, but in, in general, those seem to be kind of the two biggest types of programs that are available uh, or that people are practicing. Um, where I work uh, at Swedish Cancer Institute in Seattle, uh, we've gone with a more centralized program, uh, and we've actually done a little bit more in regards to just lung cancer screening in that we have a tobacco-related disease and lung cancer screening program, which also includes uh, incidental pulmonary nodules. Um, our personnel for this is a scene, um, uh, or, or sorry, our setup is seen in the picture to the right, but our personnel for this is uh, mainly a medical and surgical director, as well as an ARMP. And initially when we started the program, we had one ARMP, who was one full-time equivalent. And uh, this person was essentially the clinical and administrative leader of the program. Uh, and as you can see, they sat right in the middle as the advanced nurse practitioner. They ran the Center for Nicotine Dependence, Incidental Pulmonary Nodule Clinic, and the Lung Cancer Screening Program. Uh, they were involved in all facets of this in regards to administrative, clinical, uh, outreach, um, uh, research, and, and all of those um, uh, facets of this program. Um, in regards to how the, the program was set up, it was this um, ARMP. Uh, uh, she ran uh, a clinic and the clinic visits, every, every time a new patient was referred for essentially any of these three reasons, um, they would get a comprehensive history, uh, comprehensive review of system and an exam that we really tried to target tobacco related disease um, and pathology. Um, and just a little bit more about uh, us in regards to where we work uh, in the Cancer Institute. Uh, myself, as I mentioned, I'm an interventional pulmonologist. Uh, I work with another interventional pulmonologist and we have five thoracic surgeons. So all of us along with this uh, ARMP all work in the same division, uh, see all these patients as needed. And, and that's in general how we uh, kind of work. 
um, so we saw that we had this program in place and we wanted to see what the financial impact was. So um, we decided to look retrospectively at the economic impact of this nurse practitioner directed uh, program. Um, and we looked at our numbers from uh, when things started back in 2013 up until the first quarter of 2016. Uh, if you remember the CMS mandate came in sometime in 2015, early 2015. Um, but you can see uh, the gray bars represent uh, each quarter our new patients that we got. And so you can see it kind of slowly got a little bit higher. There seemed to be a little bit more of a jump in that 2015 time when uh, people were starting to pay more for, um, I'm sorry, when insurances were starting to pay more for um, uh, low-dose CTs. Uh, but then you can see cumulatively over that essentially three plus year timeframe, we had about 700 patients. Um, and we decided then to look at the revenue uh, that came from uh, this program in regards to um, uh, operations, uh, consults, um, uh, visits, or any other thing uh, that we got uh, as a result of patients being enrolled within this program. Uh, and here was our uh, revenue stream and breakdown. Um, if you look on the right side first, actually, you can see that the majority of the revenue that we brought in was mainly related to the thoracic division. So again, that was the thoracic surgeons, the interventional pulmonologists, as well as the ARMPs. Uh, there was some uh, revenue that was brought in with the non-thoracic surgery um, uh, evaluations, uh, but the majority of it was related to thoracic surgery. Um, the total revenue you can see was 733,000 plus. Uh, the majority of it, this ended up being indirect revenue. Uh, direct revenue was identified as essentially being uh, E&M coding that occurred, or E&M codes uh, and billing that then occurred in our clinic. Um, and so that was essentially the ARMP visits. Uh, the indirect revenue uh, you can then see is uh, outpatient consults, uh, both with us as well as with uh, non-thoracic providers. Uh, the professional procedure fees that, we, uh, that were incurred uh, as a result of workup and evaluation from some of these CT scans, as well as then the large chunk of the revenue coming from facility fees from both inpatient and outpatient procedures um, and uh, operations. Um, this is a list of the procedures and the operations that did occur. Um, I have starred the ones that we didn't really have any uh, uh, control of, uh, which would be the transthoracic needle aspiration, which were done in radiology, as well as the non-thoracic surgery. Uh, and I'm sorry, I said that wrong in regards to control. I mean, just that we didn't actually do them. Uh, in regards to the resection, the endoscopy, bronchoscopy, and foregut surgeries, those were all essentially done within our, um, uh, our group. Uh, and so uh, likely leading to the vast majority of that 93% versus 7% you saw before. But you can see we got a, a fair amount of lung resections, 19, um, endoscopy, bronchoscopy, and the foregut surgeries, um, all as a result of being worked up and evaluated through this program. Um, so some important lessons that uh, learned, and I, I think are a uh, particularly relevant to uh, both our study as well as kind of how our practice has been and evolved um, is that we do think it's important that all three clinics, meaning the tobacco cessation, incidental pulmonary nodule, and lung cancer screening um, are uh, integrated together. Um, we think that they likely generally have the same workflow, the incidental pulmonary nodule and the lung cancer screening. While technically they are different and some aspects are different, in, in general, the vast majority of the uh, processes tend to be somewhat similar. And so people that are running these clinics can be uh, taught or uh, figure out how to run uh, a somewhat similar 
uh, presentation. Uh, tobacco cessation is essentially uh, supposed to be offered as part of lung cancer screening. Uh, and so that easily fits into the lung cancer screening part as well as any other additional tobacco cessation that can be done. Um, one thing that we, we did learn uh, and others may have as well is that the ARMP, at least in the beginning, uh, you can see from ours, it was the first three years, um, they technically don't really pay for themselves directly just using their consulting fees uh, and billing. Um, in other instances, uh, as they gain more, meaning programs get larger, they may be able to uh, uh, accomplish that. And it, it does show up in other uh, places that that does occur. Uh, but uh, what we realized as well is that it, the ARMP billing was not necessarily as important as the other downstream revenue, which becomes very important when people go to talk to administration in regards to trying to figure out how to get these things funded. Uh, other ways to go around that would also be to maybe try to combine with other specialties uh, to see if there can be some cost sharing in regards to ARMP salaries. Uh, and then the other thing that we found that was uh, probably important for us uh, was that the ARMP was trained in all aspects of thoracic surgery. So uh, we generally don't necessarily know or don't think that just the lung cancer surgery stuff will be enough to, to uh, help support this, but rather the additional evaluations for other things, particularly foregut, uh, which our surgeons do, uh, both um, uh, lung and foregut, uh, were likely uh, a big contributor to uh, the bottom line in regards to revenue. Um, there were also multiple other uh, consults that came from the fairly um, uh, uh, extensive review in regards to the H&P and the review of systems uh, targeted towards uh, GI, vascular, cardiac, and uh, thyroid disease processes as well. That's all I have. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Gilbert. Uh, our final speaker tonight is Dr. Elliot Surveys, who's a thoracic surgeon at the Leahy Clinic in Burlington, Massachusetts. All right. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks to Dr. Tong and Dr. Anadis, as well as the STS for this uh, timely and important program. And I'm impressed to see that it looks like most of the attendees have stuck around through the entire duration. So thanks for sticking around. So uh, I have the honor of talking about the new uh, USPSTF guidelines. Uh, I'm going to talk about what are they, uh, what are the implications of the new guidelines, and how do we uh, prepare for them. Uh, so the objectives here are first, we're going to define the guidelines. Let's We'll talk about what's changed from previous guidelines and explore how the USPSTF guidelines relate to the NCCN guidelines, um, the anticipated impact of these guidelines, and then quickly some barriers to implementation. So here we're looking at the 2013 guidelines that we all have been working with. And most on the call are probably familiar with these guidelines. They were published uh, by the USPSTF in December, on December 31st, 2013. And they suggested with a grade B recommendation that screening be performed for patients aged 55 to 80 with a 30 pack year smoking history. And importantly, they had to be current smokers or have quit within 15 years. Now, the USPSTF typically updates guidelines every five years. Nevertheless, we have all been anxiously awaiting the updated guidelines, which were released just uh, in March of 2021. And the changes were uh, notably uh, that the age was dropped from 55 to 50, uh, but there still was a upper limit of 80. And the 30 pack year requirement was changed to a 20 pack year requirement. Again, importantly, patients for the USPSTF guidelines need to be current smokers or have quit within 15 years. 
So some immediate impacts that we should be uh, very happy to see uh, is that society recommendations have changed. And many of us on this uh, um, panel, and I'm sure many of the attendees have struggled with the fact that the American Association for Family Physicians uh, has been a holdout. And they, for the longest time, had not had a recommendation uh, for lung cancer screening. And in fact, this was a barrier to get some of our uh, primary care physician colleagues to recommend the, the screening study. Well, in fact, after the most recent guidelines have been released, now we see on the AFP website, there is a grade B recommendation and they are recommending lung cancer screening with the current USPSTF guidelines. Additional impacts, well, the estimate is that when we move from the initial USPSTF guidelines to the more recent update, we will nearly double the number of eligible patients in the United States. That's going from approximately 8 million to a little bit over 15 million people who will be eligible for screening. So in our own lung cancer screening program at Leahy, our cancer detection rate is 2.3%. If you were to apply 2.3% to those 15 million people now eligible, one could potentially identify nearly 350,000 new lung cancers. But of course, we're nowhere close to screening all 8 million now and certainly all 15 million that will be eligible now with the new guidelines. In fact, we as a nation are screening less than 10% and that number is probably closer to 5%. So this really highlights the importance of some of the previous talks my colleagues have given on how we can educate and how we can promote lung cancer screening. An additional important impact, and you heard a great talk earlier on the disparities in lung cancer screening, is that the new guidelines may narrow the race and gender disparities. Why would that be? Well, here is one uh, great report uh, from the University of Illinois at Sh uh, Chicago and JTO looking specifically about eligibility and populations and race and gender disparities based upon guidelines. And what we know is that African-American patients, for example, tend to have a lower pack year smoking history and may get lung cancer at a younger age. And therefore the previous guidelines had a disparity in terms of not having these patients be eligible for screening. We hope that the new guidelines will narrow this, but I want to be very clear that there are many uh, issues that still lead to significant disparities that you've heard about previously in this uh, webinar. So how does the USPSTF guidelines compare to NCCN guidelines? Well, uh, Dr. Erkman alluded to this, and this is an important distinction. In the latest NCCN guidelines, we see that screening is recommended for patients with uh, age of 50 or greater with no upper limit. The pack years is still greater than 20, but importantly, there's no max time since quitting smoking. Many of us remember the previous NCC guidelines that uh, had a distinction between group one and group two. That distinction no longer exists in the updated guidelines. So I wanna highlight the gaps between the USPSTF guidelines and the NCCN guidelines. Specifically, the USPSTF still has an upper age limit and this max time of quitting of 15 years. So this has a real significant real world impact. This is uh, an important chart that I'm gonna walk you through. This is the lung cancer registry from our hospital, the Leahy Hospital from 2018. The denominator here is the total number of lung cancers diagnosed in 2018 was 337. Some of these were diagnosed through patients being symptomatic. 
Others were asymptomatic patients. Of course, some were found during CT lung cancer screening. Other cancers were found by incidental findings on studies, or patients were getting lung cancer surveillance after having had a prior lung cancer. Well, if we apply retrospectively to this total denominator of, of lung cancers diagnosed at our hospital, the current CMS criteria based on the original USPSTF guidelines, 43% of the patients would have been eligible for screening. If on the other hand, we apply the new USPSTF criteria that were just released in March, 52.2% of all of these lung cancer patients would have been potentially eligible for screening. But interestingly, if we look at the old NCCN guidelines with an upper age limit of 80, 65.6% of these patients would have been eligible for screening. So it performs better in our cancer registry than the new USPSTF criteria. What about the most recent, the latest NCCN guidelines? 80.1% of patients who presented with lung cancer to our institution would have been eligible for screening with the new NCCN criteria. So that is an important finding. And, and why would this be? Well, if you look at the symptomatic patients who are found with cancer and the incidental patients, 33% of those patients had greater than 15 quit years. The USPSTF excludes those patients. The NCCN guidelines include those patients. And I show this because it is critical that we all advocate for uh, the NCCN guidelines. We're, we're happy with the, the update with the USPSTF, but we can't stop there. I also want to point out that in our lung cancer program now, we are diagnosing more early stage lung cancers than late stage. And obviously that has important implications for surgeons. This is a study that we published just this year in JTCVS looking at the surgical outcomes of patients in our screening program. And at the time of this study, we looked at just over uh, 3,200 patients um, and 83 surgical resections came from that study group. That's a 2.5% surgical resection rate. So we're now up to uh, approximately 8,200 patients that we've screened uh, with a total of uh, over 22,000 studies performed. And that has led to approximately 200 surgical resections. But it's not just about surgery. It's important to note that some of the other findings are critical. Here we see that coronary artery calcification is identified in over 75% of patients undergoing screening and emphysema is identified in over 50% of patients undergoing screening. So there is opportunity not only to increase our resectable lung cancers, but there's opportunity for patient benefit in identifying significant coronary artery calcifications and emphysema. Of course, we've heard a little bit about the barriers um, and there are unfortunately still barriers to the new USPSTF guidelines. Now, private insurers are regulated by the Affordable Care Act. However, this may not kick in until 2023 due to various loopholes in the way in which the Affordable Care Act enforces these new guidelines. And as you heard previously, there are additional certain grandfather clauses where people with policies that may not uh, cover preventive services may be out of luck. So we are awaiting a CMS decision on what the uh, CMS coverage will be. And in fact, the GO2 uh, Foundation for Lung Cancer, along with the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and the American College of Radiation, uh, Radiology, 
came together. And as you see here, just after the release of the USPSTF uh, update, sent a recommendation to CMS for coverage determination and really urged more coverage along the lines of the new NCCN guidelines. The period for public comment on this ended uh, June 17th, and we are now waiting for the final determination from CMS on what the coverage will be. What's our strategy at Leahy? Well, you've already heard about community and provider outreach. That's critical to educate on some of the barriers and educate on the guidelines that we are recommending for screening. We, with the anticipated increase in number of patients, we have expanded our lung cancer screening navigator personnel. And importantly, what we've uh, done is any patients who are not covered by their insurance for the updated USPSTF guidelines, we have developed a wait list where our navigators are actively uh, assessing whether these patients become covered and then we reach out to them and let them know. Many patients don't wanna wait for that and they're willing to self-pay. Um, and we have worked with our institution to have a flat fee, $125 for the screening study. And we are working to make that across the entire uh, health system. And of course, it's important to document the shared decision-making. It's important to make it clear that we are recommending CT lung screening and that the patient's not getting the study because of coverage issues, but that that shared decision-making has occurred. So in conclusion, the new USPSTF guidelines will potentially double the number of eligible patients. This will lead to increased early stage diagnosis, increased surgical or surgically resectable disease, and increased lives saved. However, it is critical, the onus is on all of us to continue advocating for the new NCCN guidelines over USPSTF as these are more inclusive guidelines. And based on the data that I showed you from our own Leahy uh, Cancer Registry has a significant opportunity to identify more lung cancers and save more lives. And finally, programs need to have strategies to overcome the insurance barriers that do exist and will exist. Uh, again, thank you for allowing me to present this to everybody. And I think this is a critically important topic. Uh, thank you again. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, I recognize that we are past the hour, but I uh, hope that uh, anyone who would like to uh, ask questions or have some discussion, uh, I would hope that we have a few minutes to do so. Um, I think Dr. Merritt has raised uh, probably the most important question that, that touches all of us is how can we as a group of surgeons uh, work to increase uh, rates of lung cancer screening for eligible patients? Um, the published rates of screening for eligible patients range from 4% to uh, the latest I've seen is about 19%. Uh, and that lags very far behind um, screening rates for breast cancer with mammography or colonoscopy. Um, so I'll pose to uh, each, of our, each of our speakers uh, in perhaps three sentences or less, uh, how, what would your main strategy be? Well, um, we'll, we'll go in maybe I'll, maybe I'll, yeah, absolutely. I, I did comment in the Q&A there, but um, in the three sentences or less, I would say there is a significant misinformation. There is a lot of misconception about the harm of lung cancer screening. Uh, for example, the false positive rates are constantly misquoted. Uh, we, uh, there, there's misconceptions about the dangers of radiation of a low dose CT scan. Uh, all of this boils down to education. 
We need to educate people on the misconceptions and the facts of lung cancer screening. And I think um, advocacy for societal guidelines changing, such as the change that we see with the AFP, will impact primary care physicians. Um, so I'll stop there. Those are a few things. Thank you. Dr. Gilbert? Yeah, I think uh, outreach is probably the, the most important thing. Uh, I know it's been spoken about. Uh, you know, there's studies, I know some of them are old, but even pulmonologists didn't believe in lung cancer screening. Um, and so, uh, and I admit that I was probably one of those people a while ago. Um, but I, I think outreach uh, in regards to education, uh, both to patients and providers, I think uh, is going to be the way to go. I think it's going to be slow, but uh, I think that's probably the best and most sustainable way to, to uh, make an improvement. Okay, Dr. Erkman. I think that the multidisciplinary effort is probably the most important part. I think that most people are getting their health information from trusted resources, their own doctors. And so getting the primary care physicians and even specialty physicians to feel confident about a referral and what happens afterwards is very important. Thank you. Dr. Arunze? I agree with everyone. Education, navigation is going to be very important. I think being in the community and letting patients and providers, once people see the data, I think there's, there's less resistance. Once people really understand that lives are saved with this mechanism, and, but I think that the gap is just lack of, of education. And so as we continue to, to educate, uh, people will fall in line, I think. Okay, Dr. Seppa, your strategy. I uh, obviously echo everything that everyone says has said, but uh, you know, education, education, education. And I must admit, I really like the strategy that Leahy had started by having a flat rate for those who um, who don't have insurance coverage and want to pay out of pocket. I mean, making it accessible despite the insurance barriers. So programs like that. Okay. Finally, Dr. Onitis, maybe give us your thoughts and and wrap it up for us, please. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that everyone said. Um, I, I think it's important to uh, point out to the referring docs that we will take responsibility for the patient, right? So for, for us, at least, we, we do all the follow-up. We keep the database. So we're, we're taking it off the hands of the primary care doctor. Um, so they don't have to take responsibility for following these nodules and determining what to do. Uh, but all in all, great information tonight. Thanks to all the panelists for participating. Thanks for everyone for signing up and, and tuning in tonight. And this will be online again tomorrow. And uh, we'll find a way to share the slides so all the resources can be widely disseminated. Wesley, anything else? Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you to all our panelists today and our moderators for your participation and insight. The STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook is now available for purchase. Online or mobile, it is the most complete and authoritative resource for CT surgical information in the world. The latest update of the ebook includes 25 new chapters in the adult and pediatric cardiac surgery volume. Learn more and subscribe at sts.org ebook. Just two weeks remain to complete your abstract submission for the STS 58th annual meeting, January 29 to 31 in Miami Beach, Florida. Don't miss the opportunity to share your work on a global stage at this high profile event. Review the guidelines and submit at sts.org abstracts. Save the date for the next event in the STS webinar series on Thursday, August 19th. The program will address a critical care topic. Thank you all and good night.